Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this IFG event on science after coronavirus. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an associate director at the IFG and I lead our work on policy making. I want to start by taking you back briefly to this day one year ago. Neil Ferguson had just published his bombshell report. Many of us had just started working uh, from home. There would be another four days until uh, the government announced a national lockdown. The model and businesswoman Caprice had just been mocked by a doctor on the Jeremy Vine show for asking whether we should be wearing masks and closing our borders. Few of us could have imagined then what an extraordinary, extraordinary year it would be. And scientists above all have had an extraordinary role in it. Uh, from the first lockdown decision through questions on social distancing and masks, treatments, testing, the R number, they've been front and centre advising policymakers and informing the public. Uh, among other scientific achievements, the rapid creation and deployment of vaccines, described as a moonshot, uh, has shown a capacity for collaboration and innovation that many have uh, has led many to start thinking differently about future challenges. So science has had a huge role in the COVID crisis, but this morning we're going to explore the role the COVID crisis will have in changing science. What lessons should the science community learn about managing uncertainty, advising conflicted politicians or communicating with a nervous public? How should, how should the way science works change? Um, for example, how scientists collaborate very quickly on problems. How can the UK become a science superpower? We have a brilliant panel to do it. Uh, Professor Peter Openshaw is Professor of Experimental Medicine at Imperial College London, and one of the UK's leading immunologists. He's worked on respiratory viruses and influenza for over 30 years uh, and is a member of the expert task force on immunology of COVID-19 and a member of the UK Vaccine Network. He was a member of SAGE, I think, during the swine flu crisis uh, and has been at the coalface during this crisis as vice chair of NERVTAG, uh, the Committee on New and Emerging Respiratory Viruses. Dr Rupert Lewis is Chief Science Policy Officer at the Royal Society, where he focuses on improving the use of evidence, but the use of science by policymakers. Before that, he worked in government as head of the Government Office for Science, Go Science, uh, where he was helping to develop advice that goes up to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet on all matters scientific. He was also responsible for strategic foresight projects and the science of emergency response. And before his time in Go Science, he held posts in the Business Department and in DEFRA. Dr Beth Thompson is Head of Policy and Advocacy for UK and EU at the Wellcome Trust. Her work focuses on ensuring uh, that government policy and law support research and innovation through strong funding for research, uh, access to talented people and regulation that supports science while promoting public trust. She was awarded an MBE in the, in the Queen's 2017 birthday honours for her work on EU data protection uh, regulation. Before we get started, you can submit questions using the bar at the bottom of the screen if you include your name and where you're writing from. Please try and make them short and ensure that they are in fact questions. Uh, if you see someone else asking a question you like the sound of, just upvote it. Uh, we will be live tweeting this from uh, the hash uh, from, from the account IFG events and using the hashtag IFG science and we'll have a video and sound recording of the event on our website tomorrow. I'd like to thank the forum at Imperial College London who are kindly supporting this 
event as part of a series. So, Peter, I'm going to start with you, and I wanted to start with really the big issue of this week or today even. Um, so, over a dozen European countries will be restarting using the AstraZeneca vaccine today, having paused over concerns about a link with blood clots, which proved to be unfounded. Uh, what have the last weeks and months shown us about how different countries incorporate scientific evidence into political and regulatory decisions? And what challenges does that create for scientists? Well, Tom, that's a huge question. I don't know where to start with it, really. I mean, specifically on the on the on the issues that have been to the forefront over the past week or so, I think it, it shows just how important it is that we have um, proper due deliberation and uh, transparency over over possible side effects. And I do think that the fact that um, this these issues have been flagged and have been discussed so openly is a good thing in many ways, because it does show that the system is working and that nothing is being concealed. But I think it also shows just how unhelpful it can be to have um, a very, very long public debate, agonising over detail before the detail has really become clear. And it's a very difficult balance to get in terms of openness, but at the same time being able to reassure people that, you know, this is the only exit strategy we've got and that we must do everything we can to make sure that vaccine rollout is, is, uh, is fast and um, that people maintain confidence in vaccines. So I think communication to me is is the key and being open and honest with what's what, with what's happening in science. Mm. And it's interesting because some people have been pointing to this as just quite different regulatory philosophies and sort of where you put the sort of burden of proof and, and what level of evidence you need. On the other hand, you know, given the number of people who are being given these vaccines, there are presumably are going to be all sorts of scares where sort of statistically you might see a sort of number of something happening, but statistically it doesn't really mean anything. So do you think that there's something that can be learned there for the future of this sort of vaccine rollout about how we treat those kind of scares or, or, or in fact how other regulators abroad do that? Yes, well, I think there's two things to say. One is that those of us who sat on many, many committees know that, know that there is a sort of uh, sociology of a committee um, that is almost uh, inevitable in terms of the outcome, depending on how it's constituted, what the questions are that you put to it, and how they will be mindful of the um, of the optics of their decision making. Um, and I think if you if you ask a committee to make a very specific decision over whether to suspend uh, a vaccine rollout, then um, and don't ask them to consider the broader implications then it's very tempting for that committee to say, yes, for safety, let's just suspend for two weeks without having thought that that may result in thousands of deaths from people who are then not going to be vaccinated. Um, so I, th I think the other thing I wanted to say is that once a rare and difficult to diagnose event like cerebral venous thrombosis is flagged, the medical community are all going to start thinking, ah, was that case I saw last week perhaps one of those? These are not, not cases that present themselves in a way that necessarily flags up to your attention that perhaps something a bit difficult to diagnose is going on here. And you, just doing an ordinary CT scan won't actually show um, the presence of CVST in all um, cases. So I think 
you know, the, the increase in awareness amongst the medical public um, will actually result in a big surge in cases of diagnosis just because it's something that you don't necessarily think about when somebody presents with a headache and other rather odd neurological things that you can't quite fit together. So I, I do think we need to be forewarned that we're going to see a big surge in, in these diagnoses just because it's been put into the, into the awareness of the medical community. That's a really interesting point. And, and a lot of people have warned about the sort of risks of disinformation just around the number of cases that you will get expectedly due to, due to the, the sort of number of people we are vaccinating. I think that other point which we might come back to about the fact that the scientific inter policy process is not insulated from, you know, all these other actors, whether that's sort of doctors examining patients uh, or indeed what's going on in other countries abroad. Um, I just wanted to ask you another question, sort of casting your eye back. I mentioned that very first Neil Ferguson report. You've been there with nerve tag. I think you were sort of uh, meeting well before that, uh, even as early as January. How would you sort of condense the lessons that you've learned? Obviously, this is not your first crisis, but the lessons you've learned about the role scientists play in advising policymakers. What do you think has gone well and, and badly? Yes. Well, I think this it's very it's a really interesting question. And I I mean, I've been reflecting on what, how it is that we've got such a good, well-established mechanism for feeding scientific advice up to government. And yet we've ended up with one of the one of the worst um, death rates in in Europe. You know what? What? How has that gone on? What has what's been the problem here? And I, I, I really I think there are many, many reasons that you could say that we've had a very a much higher death rate in some other countries. But I think some of it may be to do with a caution about accepting evidence that is not quite there. Mm. Uh, caution amongst the scientific uh, committees in really, really putting putting their money on the table when they think that more studies are needed, which of course they always are. I mean, for example, I think in the early days, we didn't really take into account some of the soft evidence that masks were useful. Mm. And the decision was made not to consume the nation's supply of PPE, which was rather sparse, by telling everyone to wear surgical masks at a time when they weren't really available. Um, and that if an earlier decision on the basis of you know, the weight of evidence was made that masks actually would be quite a good thing under many circumstances, we might have had a lower death rate, for example. So there is a, a sort of uh, caution and inertia in our scientific system. Um, I think we did, there are a number of things we did anticipate really well. The Academy of Medical Sciences report that came out in June last year was spot on in terms of how bad a winter we were going to get. You can almost overlay the um, the actual data now onto the proje projection that we made with the advice of the epidemiologists. That was pretty amazing. And we got a lot of things right. I think we didn't quite anticipate um, the frequency with which new variants were going to arise. We thought that this was a relatively stable virus, but there's a lot we could talk about there. But I think we got a lot of things right. And um, looking back, I can see a few things that actually went a bit wrong. That's, that's really interesting. And, and of course, you've got this kind of very 
you know, elaborate structure of sort of SAGE and then all these subcommittees for pulling in a huge volume of evidence and then sort of synthesizing that and going up to, to policymakers. Two questions about that. I mean, do you think that that structure has worked well enough in terms of actually bringing all the evidence in and particularly evidence of what's happening abroad? And then secondly, is there anything about the way that that evidence has then been communicated to policymakers that you think scientists need to, to reflect on? Because, I mean, you mentioned some of the issues about where scientists are putting the emphasis where there is uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I know, having been embedded in this for decades, that, that it does generally work pretty well. And you can see that what we say in our in our advisory committees is almost immediately on ministers' desks because they quite often quote it in, in Parliament or on news broadcasts, sometimes within minutes of us actually um, making a recommendation. It is quite remarkable. And I don't think that that happens in many other countries, although my knowledge of that is a bit limited. I think when I speak about this at, at European meetings, they're quite surprised that we have such a, a large and sophisticated network of scientific advisory committees um, using some of the best brains in the country to try to digest the information that's out there and feed it up to um, to government. Um, so, you know, I think potentially it works very, very well. I think we have to appreciate that there are other um, influences on the decision makers. You know, there may be other people who are, you know, chewing at the ankles of ministers for breakfast and supper. Um, and they may be trying to pull them in a direction that um, we're not trying to um, push them towards. So, you know, they are in a difficult position sometimes of making a decision which is balanced by the scientific advice and by the political advice, which may, may be contradictory. Mm. Rupert, a similar question to you. I mean, you look at this from the Royal Society, but you've also got long experience within government of sort of looking at how these science advice sort of functions from the inside would you how would you describe the sort of strengths and weaknesses of that process uh, that we've seen in the last year um uh, i would agree completely with peter i mean we, the uk does have a huge um set of science advisory mechanisms uh, in uh, most if not all government departments um and SAGE was the culmination of that in terms of its role in feeding science advice uh, to COBRA meetings. And uh, when I was uh, in Go Science, we would regularly have um, other governments come and see us and say, we really like your SAGE system, uh, how, can you, how can you help? Um, I think um, there's a huge difference though between uh, when you exercise and practice for such events and, and the reality. And uh, you know, there's nothing like experience. The, the, you look at the way that uh, nations like Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam have reacted. Um, they have real experience of this kind of thing from uh, from past um, uh, infectious diseases. And SARS and MERS and so on never didn't really touch the UK that much. So um, I think part of our sort of inertia, as Peter described it, um, is inevitable from from the fact that uh, this was completely new to us. Um, I do think as well that. Um, as, as Peter said, 
The science advice is only one part of the policy uh, decision making. Um, you know, policy maker needs to think also what's the cost, what are the risks, what are the feasibility, what's acceptability, um, and that's quite a complex mix. And uh, you know, the science advice is just part of that. I mean, Sage just gives the science advice, um, and uh, the decision making process is complex. And I, and I guess from the outside, we're not particularly cited on it. Um, uh, you know, we gave advice on masks, for example, in the Royal Society, where there was quite a lot of inertia on, on, on that particular question. Um, but we only gave advice on the efficacy of masks, uh, which, is, which is pretty clear. Um, uh, government would then need to think how much they cost. As Peter said, are we going to drain the, the limited PPE supply? So, so the decision making process is, uh, has to consider many more issues. Do you think that broader advice should be more transparent. I mean, it's, it's interesting that we have this expectation around scientific advice being quote unquote independent, but also being transparent. And the issue of sort of SAGE publishing its minutes has become a big factor in the sort of political process. Do you think we should also have the economic advice, other forms of advice? Yeah, I, 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 I do actually. Uh, and it is interesting when you speculate on the, um, the, the number 10 briefings, we have the chief medical officer got the chief scientists up there. We don't have the chief economist of government um, you know, just describing the, the, the wider picture. Um, and that's that's a gap. And, and I think that's, that's led to uh, months ago, this sort of almost question of uh, competition between the public health goals and the economic goals, rather than what are the right trade-offs for, for the nation. So it, it does feel as if the the wider parts of the evidence uh, that was used uh, could have done with more exposure. And um, you know, SAGE has uh, become extremely transparent. Not that it wasn't before, it's just that before there wasn't the pressure to do, to do this. Um, and uh, SAGE participants were focused on getting the job done, going through the emergency, and um, publication was, was, uh, was not the, the urgent priority. I think it's a good thing that uh, SAGE now um, has put a lot more resources into the publication of their evidence. It is a way of uh, holding the public sector more to account on the decision there, decisions that they're making, which I think is very useful. It would, be, it would be great to see that replicated across more kinds of evidence, though um, have to recognise that there's a lot of, lot of resources required to do that well and quickly. I wonder what you think about bringing these disciplines together a bit more. So, I mean, one of the things we've seen a bit in this crisis is SAGE being in one box, you know, the Treasury having its own economic advice being over here with a sort of slightly different view. There's been calls on the outside, people saying you need economic and epidemiological modelling to be done together. There's been some people saying put economists on SAGE. We at IFG didn't think that would particularly solve it. Other people say, no, the Cabinet Office needs to be doing a much better job at bringing this all together. I mean, you've been there at the centre of government. What, what do you think about that question? Um I think fundamentally, taking a broader approach is always a good thing. So, in the Royal Society, we've done uh, we've done some uh, publications on particularly on bringing epidemiologists and economists together. Uh, our, our Delve Data Science Research Group published a, an early paper on on that. We've we've done uh, a paper on uh, schools where we we considered the science and and the effect on education and so on. So it's quite wide. We've done papers on vaccines where we've included. Um, uh, social research uh, with colleagues from the British Academy on uh, vaccine hesitancy and so on. Those are really important things for policymakers to think about. And uh, it might be the case that scientists by themselves wouldn't necessarily consider all those wider issues. So I think it is really important. Um, 
And the, I guess the other issue is, is that um, if you bring in other disciplines, it can change quite significantly the way you frame a question in the first place, uh, and that can lead to quite different policy conclusions. So uh, my personal view is that it is very good to, to take a broader perspective right from the start, and particularly while you're trying to figure out what the question really is. Mm. And one last question on the structures. So we've seen a little bit of the kind of early warning shots of some of the battles that are going on going to going to happen in a public in, inquiry in the last few weeks and some of sort of people you know number 10 or, or wherever pushing back and saying sage is going to be reviewed we're going to look at that that process do you think the model is broadly right and and one of the criticisms that perhaps has been that we've stuck with sage for far too long in this crisis it was only designed to be a temporary structure and actually it's been going for a year now so do you think there should be a sort of protocol for that around how you move to a departmental response? Um, so whilst the uh, most departments uh, have uh, government, uh, have chief scientific advisors, um, I think it's worth remembering that the model is not that old. Um, it, it came in in the probably just post um, uh, BSE and foot and mouth and it's taken time to evolve. And naturally, when that happens, you get the science heavy departments have uh, have probably quite strong advisory systems and others that uh, don't automatically uh, imagine they need it might have weaker systems. So I think there's a, a good question to ask about. Um, I think SAGE has basically stepped into the gaps and has been, you know, has been, been much more broadly tasked than it was designed for. That's been a good thing because SAGE has mechanisms that work. Um, longer term, though, uh, it 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 does seem that it would be really worth asking slightly wider questions about government science capability as a whole and uh, you know, you know, individual departments where they need to be, uh, what their systems uh, uh, need to look like um, for uh, sort of future events of this nature. Mm. Brilliant and just, just before I come to Beth I've got a question here from Michael Paisley uh, Rupert which relates to this so He's asking, given the different political approaches to challenges like pandemic, climate across the UK, is it time for the devolved governments to develop their own independent science policy? That's a fascinating question. And uh, gosh, there could be many answers to that. Um, it is certainly the case that if you look just geographically at the devolved administrations, they have different science problems. I think it's probably more useful to frame this uh, more widely. So if you, you if you take the, the pandemic, um, we have the same um, the same emergency happening across all uh, all nations. And so getting the best advice we, we can and all nations being able to use that advice seems to be a very good thing. Um, if you take, um, say, the implementation of um, uh, sort of social measures uh, at local level, then different areas have different problems. Uh, you know, the, 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 the situation that you would, uh, you know, the social measures you need in Cornwall would not be the same as the ones you need in, in say, Manchester. So I think there's a wider question about local science advice. Um, and local authorities and science advice that is pretty interesting because the needs are very different from one place to another. But I think on on the broader question of where we have common problems, then uh, everybody being able to access the common science is, is, is obviously a good thing. Um, but uh, where, where issues localise, then um, then local advice uh, would is also uh, a good question to 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 examine. So 
So would you consider sending some of your former colleagues uh, from Go Science out to the regions as part of these sort of dispersals that we're seeing with the Treasury or, or other departments to try and get a bit more of a, you know, regional sense in, in the UK's policy? Or I think for policymakers in general, it is always a good thing to see what happens at the, uh, the, the I mean, policymakers spend most of the time in, in Whitehall historically, mm. and that is not where you get a sense of how the real world works and, and, and what really happens as a result of your policy. So I think it's a good thing in general for, uh, you know, all actors in these, be it scientists, policymakers or whoever, um, to see the operational side of, 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 of what they're advising on. Um, okay. And uh, why, why not disperse them uh, to where they're most needed? Uh, I'm sure they'll thank you for that. Uh, Beth, um, come, come to you. So Wellcome's one of the biggest funders, you know, spending about a billion a year uh, supporting research. Um, Jeremy Farrer has been sort of lauded for his roles in sort of helping us, you know, identify COVID treatments and things like that. It's been really sort of front and centre. Have you been surprised at the kind of speed with which scientific collaboration, whether that's on the funding side or just on methods, has, has sort of evolved during this crisis? I think it's been really fascinating to see something that in the research community we talk about quite glibly. So this, the importance of international collaboration, the importance of bringing disciplines together. Those are things that we've we've said, we've talked about their importance, but actually seeing it happen and the speed and scale at which it's happened has been phenomenal. And I think we've not always been great at articulating the benefits of that global collaboration, but the nature of this global problem, I think has made it much clearer for all of us why it has to happen. And we can only solve a global problem like this, but the same goes for things like climate change. When we bring together those different perspectives from around the world, when we bring together the capacity and capability of more than one country in order to kind of turn our attention on one problem, and in a sense, I'm not surprised how it's worked in this case, because in an emergency and in a crisis, I think it, it really galvanises efforts and it helps people kind of come together around a common problem. But I think actually what's really interesting is how we can learn from this and apply this to other global problems in future. Um, but I think, you know, we've seen it's also not just in, it's not just about international collaboration. It's about how we work together across different sectors. So bringing together academia, small and large industry, so small biotechs through to the big pharma companies, um, philanthropies like Wellcome and the Gates Foundation, and then working with the big multilateral organisations as well as governments. And this has been an, a, a fantastic example of, of how we can do that. I think one of the things we're yet to crack in all of that is we've done some of the science brilliantly. I think we couldn't have predicted how, how well it's gone in terms of creating um, the number of, effect of effective vaccines that we have, but we have to work out how to get those to people as well and how to do that equitably, because the science is only useful if we actually put it to use. Um, so that is, a, is, a, is one of the challenges that we're definitely still grappling with across the community. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And I want to come back to some of that, those sort of, you know, UK science questions in, in just a moment. But just on the, on the sort of international collaboration piece, I don't now, if you saw Yuval Noah Harari had an interesting piece in the FT the other week where he was saying that, you know, scientists have been collaborating despite politicians not really cooperating, you know, and, and sort of making the point that, you know, you've seen this this big increase in, in scientists working together. Do you think that that 
sort of lack of political cooperation, if you accept that that's been the case, has, has sort of held that back at all? Or do you think actually that scientists can just get on with it and the best institutions in the in the US can pick up the phone to, to you at the Wellcome Trust and it, it sort of works okay? I think it's part of the nature of research that people collaborate and lots of collaboration was happening before the pandemic. And I actually think there haven't been huge blocks and barriers to researchers doing that and just getting on with it. Mm. That has been, it's been great to see how effectively it has worked. I think one thing we need to think about in the future is that when we're responding to a crisis and we need the sheer volume of research that we've got going on at the moment is how we pay for it. Mm. And in this crisis, we've been fundraising as we go for some of the huge R&D efforts and the, and, and the collaborations through things like the, um, the ACT Accelerator, which is a big, international platform but to be fundraising and actually doing the R&D at one time is not a very effective way to do it and ACTA is still having to raise money so I think we need to think about for these really big global problems how do you share the burden of risk and benefit to, to help the system and that's where really the politics and um, and the science collaboration come yeah. together so on a very practical day-to-day -day level I don't think things have held us back but ultimately these things need money to support them mm. and and take us into those those sort of funding questions because you would hope that you know this huge success of science in the crisis has in one way sort of will you know open the floodgates of funding and we hear politicians saying the you know they want the UK to be a science superpower on the other hand, you know, your own organisation, many others in, in the science community have been pointing out, we've got this cut to ODA funding, we've got potentially less money being made up through the Horizon funding. So, so what do you think is the outlook for that, for that funding question? It, I mean, this is the question of the week. As you say, I think we've seen what science can do. Um, we know that the government has a vision for what science can do. The integrated review set that out really clearly this idea of um, the value that UK science can bring to the rest of the world and the value that it brings to the UK itself and we can quibble with whether science superpower is the term we would all choose to use but I think many in the research community can really get behind that sense that um, we have something really great to offer we have a leadership contribution to make but at the moment we're seeing rhetoric that is not matched by action and the government putting its money where its mouth is. We have very positive words in terms of the long-term trajectory for science spending. Um, that's really good news. But at the moment, that there just isn't the evidence that that's happening. And as you say, we've got um, cuts to the ODA budget that are linked to the drop from 0.7 to 0.5% GNI. Um, that is stopping some projects in their tracks money that people were expecting to have over the next financial year isn't going to them. So that is going inevitably to damage research projects and, and damage partnerships um, in a way that is really tragic at a time that we can see the benefit that this should be doing in the world. So that on one side is terrible. We also have Horizon as a really powerful mechanism for collaboration um, across Europe. It's the EU's funding programmes. We were all delighted that the UK was able to fully participate that in, in that as part of the Brexit deal. But we don't know where the roughly a billion pounds to pay for that is going to come from in the next financial year. And the risk seems to be that will come out of the rest of the science budget. So we need the government to match its action to its words, quite simply. Mm. Rupert, 
you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, 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 just to follow on Beth's comments, I think what in the science world we probably need to be better at communicating the realities of, of the, the investment. So it's not that the Oxford Vaccine Group has suddenly invented a, a great vaccine, it's that they've done 10 years of research in vector technology, which took a lot of time and effort. And you know, research capacity, the UK has astonishing research capacity, um, but it is it is a fragile thing. And it, if, you, if you do stop-start funding uh, or, or cut funding, it's easy to, for the capacity to disappear it takes long, long time, years to get it back, and that's if our competitors uh, don't steal the march on us and fill the gap. So, so I think um, both applied and basic research, the, 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 the PCR technology that's behind almost all of the testing, um, came from a uh, obscure research on hot spring bacteria. Um, you know, that that kind of link. There's so much basic research that has come together in uh, in in in, in as, as Peter said, the only way out now. And getting that across um, to uh, policymakers and politicians is probably something we need to we need to uh, really do as well as we can. Peter, you wanted to come in? Yes. So I'd just like to to also just contribute a bit to this discussion, the risk of sounding rather sort of ingratiating to the Wellcome Trust, that they in my program about maybe what, 15 years ago um, agreed to, to fund it but said you can't drop the human component. So they steered me from very basic research into doing human studies. And then with the Mosaic study in 2009, when they asked me to lead a pandemic response to influenza, they said you can lead it but you can't do it all from Imperial. It has to be a nationwide effort taking the best British science you can and you have to distribute it and I think that has been a, a model for the PREPARE consortium in Europe and now for the ISRIC 4C consortium. You know, it's, it actually it, it, it was a trailblazer in terms of setting down how to do science and you know I, I really take my hat off to those funders including the Welcome and the MRC who've invested for years, for years in this. You know, all of this hasn't happened just by chance from nowhere. You know, it all goes back to the common cold unit that was set up after the Second World War and uh, funded by the Medical Research Council until it was shut down about 1988 or so. So, you know, there's been decades, maybe centuries of investment in this country in science excellence, which is why we have been able to do what we've done and to really contribute on a global stage and it's, it's that very very long-term funding and also sort of benevolent steerage from the funders in ways which are actually really helpful. Peter we had your your colleague Robin Shattuck uh, on this uh, virtual stage a couple of weeks ago and he was making the point that um, Pfizer and Moderna have you know uh, benefited from decades of financial backing uh, in, in the US and in Germany and actually one of the reasons we haven't managed to develop an mRNA vaccine here in the UK is because that, that hasn't been quite so consistent. Uh, the other point that several people have made, I think, is that, you know, in some ways, the UK vaccine success was driven by its sort of particular strengths, you know, a handful of elite institutions, particular strength in pharmaceuticals. But it doesn't necessarily provide a template for some of the sort of broader sort of uh, sort of uses of science that uh, you know the government might like to 
imagine. So would you argue that we need to see a bit of a change in the model there? Well, I think we've been doing really well. And I think the NIHR funding um, that's gone, the National Institute of Healthcare Research funding that uh, Sally Davis was very, very um, prominent in championing has had a major effect in developing clinical science in this country. I'd also flag up the regulatory and ethical aspects, um, you know, that have allowed us to be the first country in the world to do human infection challenge in volunteers just um, just in the last two weeks with coronavirus. Um, and these are extraordinarily um, powerful studies in terms of dis- not only discovering things about the biology, but also fast-tracking vaccine development and the development of novel therapeutics. So I do think there are some real strengths here, which again come from long-term funding and investment. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Beth, did you want to come in on that? I think Peter's making a really important point there, and there's, for me, a lesson that we need to learn for the future. So there are some things we've managed to do at unprecedented speed and scale while maintaining quality, and I'd add the recovery trial to that list, um, which has has been phenomenally successful across the UK. And and Peter's point about the ethics and the regulation is so important because I think because it's been a crisis, our our regulators, who had lots of strengths to start with, have really approached this with a kind of can-do, how do we facilitate this as much as possible? And that made things like recovery possible it made made sure they could happen really quickly and I think it's about a year to the day they recruited their first patient which is quite incredible we have to make that business as usual in the UK after the pandemic and learn those lessons we can't always do everything at immense speed um, because there wouldn't be capacity but we have to learn I think about what it teaches about us about risk and opportunity and apply that much more frequently and use that brilliant capability we have across the NHS to run this kind of thing at scale because that could be an enormous, enormous strength for the UK in the future. And, and one of the, the benefits of leaving the EU perhaps is that sort of regulatory nimbleness that you could carve out, uh, carve out on your own. Um, Rupert, I wanted to come back to you on the, this funding question. We've been talking about the sort of 2.4% target and it you know for us on the outside some of us might imagine that government just has a big lever it can pull and it can sort of suddenly drive up R&D investment why is that so hard you were sort of mentioning that actually you know it's been a target for a long time yeah, I think one of the main reasons is because uh, within that uh, overall picture of R&D intensity only a third of the, the funding is from government and the other two thirds is from the private sector and half of that is from overseas um, so uh, it's not it's not just about government investment. Um, I mean, it's partly about making the case uh, again and again through different political cycles. Um, but it's also about what can the government do to make the UK really really attractive to foreign direct investment of, of one kind or another and uh, and uh, local uh, investment. Um, and there's that's that's not that easy. Uh, and I, I guess another issue in the last. Uh, decade has been that again i think one of the strengths that uh, peter and beth have alluded to on the biomedical side is medical research council and nihr funding um, which have been consistent policy um, sort of through different political cycles if you look wider on the innovation landscape um, we've had a variety of uh, different uh, industrial strategies um, in the last couple of years, a, a sort of a bit of an absence of industrial strategy, a, an innovation strategy that might come along in a few months. 
So there's been an inconsistency, uh, and that's um, uh, not that good for for the science world. Um, that that sort of uh, patchy approach, um, and it doesn't give uh, investors. Um, yeah, you, you learn one thing, and and then it changes, and you have to learn another thing. So it makes it slightly more difficult for the investment world, I think, to contribute. We've got an R&D roadmap. Beth, you might want to come in on this as well. I mean, do you think that that roadmap sort of gives any sense of direction there? I mean, I, I take your point on the sort of changing industrial strategies and so on. Yeah, I think I mean, the roadmap um, asks all the right questions. Uh, and I mean, it largely does that. It largely asks a, a lot of questions. Um, so it's not yet uh, in the space of giving a clear sense of direction about where, where policy is going. Um, there are a few hints there that uh, are sort of bullets to bite that the UK uh, policymakers probably have not sort of bitten fully on uh, over the years. And um, one of them is the, the idea in the roadmap that there needs to be bigger bets in a small number of areas. You know, we're, we're a small country. Uh, can we continue to try to do everything? Um, or do we need to try to figure out where our strengths really are and support them? Uh, and if we do that, the conundrum of um, how do you know where a new strength is going to be in 10 years time if you don't if you don't let this sort of plant seeds? Um, so at least the the roadmap um, flags up that rather fundamental uh, issue, which is helpful. Um, it, it remains to be seen um, the extent to which you know, the question, the rhetoric, if you like, will, will be translated into into reality. Beth, do you want to come in on that? I agree with everything um, that Rupert said. It sets a helpful trend and sense of direction, but it doesn't help us really answer some of those crunchy policy choices that we're going to face yet. But what we have seen is the pieces of work to start to trickle down from the R&D roadmap. So things like the people and culture strategy coming up um, and also that work on, on the place agenda. Um, I actually think in terms of people and culture, we've learned things through the pandemic that, that help us think through some of those challenges. So things like the inequities in the impacts um, on, on researchers working through the pandemic. So those with caring responsibilities have had a really tough time. Um, uh, that doesn't really do it justice, but it's been enormously difficult to keep up your research career while trying to manage your other responsibilities. And funders and government are going to have to think through cleverer ways to take that into account. And if we can do that now, um, can we do that in the future? Can we get better at saying what's this individual circumstances and what contribution are they making? And are those things proportionate rather than expecting the same from from everyone? So I think there's some there's promise in the roadmap in terms of the direction it's it's heading in, but lots more work to be done. And that's just one small example. Mm. And I wanted to pick up this question of methods. Uh, we talked a bit about this sort of flourishing of preprints as well, you know as well as sort of changes in the funding landscape the fact that actually the way scientists are sharing what they're doing and peer reviewing is, is changing what do you see as the sort of long-term consequences of that and is there a need to sort of develop new uh, sort of expectations around how, how you ensure quality? I think what's been really helpful is to see things like preprints becoming a norm um, and I think that's been accelerated through the pandemic. Some of the journals have made their um, uh, all of their COVID work open access, which has also been a great thing to see. So I, I think it's helping us push on some of those things that are really good for the community um, and, and catalyze those, effectively make them happen more quickly than they would have done 
otherwise. But you're right that there's this tension between um, pace and and rigor some of the time, or at least those things haven't gone through as many checks as they would have done when they've been published. I don't think we're ever going to get a perfect answer to that, but it's partly about how we share and communicate the findings and people understanding the risks that come um, you know, that come attached. I think we all want to see research that's really high quality, whether that's in preprint form or once it's been published. Mm. Um, we know the peer review system doesn't always catch mistakes anyway. So I think that expectation of rigor um, is something that all of us across the system have to find ways to reinforce. But fundamentally, um, early sharing is good. Other disciplines have been doing this actually for much longer than the biomedical sciences. And I think we've got things to learn there, but understanding the status of that research and communicating it um, clearly and without kind of over egging something that, you know, it still might be uncertain um, yeah. feels to me like the best way to manage it and goes back to some of Peter's early comments about the, the importance of communicating uncertainty and, and that we know that's not easy, but it's doable. Yeah. Peter, I'll let you respond to that. And then I've got a couple of questions from the audience on vaccines, which I want to put to you. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with Beth about about early publication and the value of it. I think it, it has meant that things have moved with enormous speed because we're not having these months of delay while the referees, particularly referee three is always a bad one, <laughs> goes through your manuscript and, and holds it up and asks for more experiments. But on the other hand, it does mean that as soon as something is out there, you get journalists on the line you know, extrapolating from from your comments into some disaster scenario, which you then have to try and nip in the bud. So it's, it's led to enormous intensity at a time when you know, many of us are under great personal and social pressures as well. It has been a quite unprecedented year um, for all of us, I think. No, that's, that's really interesting. And there's been some, as I know, in the journalistic world, arguing for sort of certain standards around only reporting things if you can see the underlying data, you know, not going on the basis of press releases and things like that. We've seen some big issues with the, you know, Hans Blatt, the newspaper in Germany, reporting on the vaccines. A couple of questions here. So one from uh, Ron Marchant, uh, who asked uh, Peter, uh, does the fact that the major vaccine manufacturers aren't amongst those with approved products tell anything about tell us anything about the research models they use, and does it suggest how those models might change? Um, I'm just I'm just wondering I don't know if others want to comment on this as well. I mean, I think it's interesting that that, um, that AZ really stepped up to the plate and put in a major, major investment into something which they were committed not, not to make a profit from during the pandemic. Um, and it really, there was a commitment to public good from many of our major manufacturers in terms of, you know, sharing ideas, maybe sharing reagents that went into vaccines. You know, a vaccine isn't just the protein, it's or the RNA, it's the things that go with it, like the adjuvants, which uh, enhance the immune response. So there has been quite a lot of sharing of skills and techniques um, between manufacturers as well, which I think has been um, a, a very, very good thing in terms of accelerating the development of all these effective vaccines. I'm not sure if that was Really I think that got to the thrust of it. And obviously, you know, sort of cooperation on trials and all sorts of things like that. And a related question here from Keith, Peter, which I also put to you first, but welcome others to come in, 
He asks, if the production of vaccines show the value of international cooperation, do the problems with distribution not show the dangers of the nationalism, which is still very attractive to political leaders? I think that's for somebody else. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if any of my panel will want to uh, come in. and. and, I, and I can that. take that one briefly. <laughs> I think we have seen signs of that kind of vaccine nationalism emerging. Um, but as as we at Welcome have said on many times, on many occasions before, there is an enormous value and uh, in us working together on the manufacturing issues, on the equity issues, equitable access and sharing those vaccines around the world. It's actually informed self-interest to do that. So although it may seem appealing to, to close your boundaries, to look inwards, to say we all need our own manufacturing capacity and we're going to rely on what we can produce in our country, it's not a practical solution at the end of the day. So we, we need that international cooperation to make it work. So I think it's a worrying trend that we've seen, but also countered by some brilliant efforts to collaborate internationally to solve those problems. Mm. And we're not going to win. We we can't use these tools, which are our only exit strategy, unless we make that work and we make sure that we've got access for everyone. Absolutely. Rupert, I've got a question here, which I'm going to put to you from David Black, who says, as a PPI person, I don't know what PPI is, but I think it's something to do with science communication, because he says, as a PPI person, I've been really disappointed by how science has been communicated to lay citizens. Do we need more scientific communicators who are better able to effectively tell the story to the public? Yeah, I, I think the simple answer is yes. And uh, I, I guess one of the issues that the pandemic has really shone a light on is the fact that in general, the science community like to do their work um, and that's their strength. Um, and uh, science being in the limelight is a somewhat new experience for, for many people. Um, and it's something for which uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not uh, that common uh, when you do a PhD to say have a training module on communication. There are, I and mean, that's changed quite a lot in the, in, in the last decade or so. So the Science Media Centre and other such groups have done a fantastic job of, of uh, uh, bringing uh, you know, scientists who want to communicate and are good at communicating in, into, into the public sphere. Um, there are some really good, good science journalists in the UK in, in the uh, tabloids and the broadsheets that do a fantastic job of communicating science well. But I think the general answer is yes, uh, it, I, I, it's you know, scientists who are publicly funded, um, uh, you, they, the, the public um, probably has a, a good rationale for, for sort of asking them to answer the question, what are you doing and why does it matter to me? Um, so scientists in general having a, a sort of high level of awareness of that of that need is 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 important. Um, and uh, if we can boost the, the science media centres um, uh, efforts in some way, shape or form, and universities have become better at supporting their scientists uh, in recent years through communication as well, that, that's also a good thing. I think it has it has exposed something of a gap between the day job of most scientists and and, uh, and what you know, the public would like to know about. Mm. And I take your point completely on the sort of science media centre role and, and the way that scientists have been thrust onto you know radio programmes every morning. I heard Peter on the Today programme only this week. Um, what do you think about the, the sort of press conferences, the daily press conferences and the way those have worked as a way of communicating science? We've seen 
you know, in one sense, it's great that we've got sort of Patrick Valance, Chris Whitty up there all the time explaining things. On the other hand, you've had some criticism about, you know, quite dense slideshows and, and perhaps it's also quite difficult for them standing alongside the politicians to always be perfectly clear about what the scientific evidence is. What Do you think that works as a format? I think in general it has. Uh, and I should say, I think it's really hard. Um, you know, if you're trying to explain uh, you know, very technical things is, ne is never an easy thing to do and doing it under the pressure of a press conference where you've got the Prime Minister standing beside you is probably, that's not, it's not the daily kind of pressure that most scientists are very used to. Um, so, and, and I think you can see that their, that their abilities and, and the, the technology that they've used has probably improved as time, as their experience has gone, time, time has passed. Um, the PowerPoints are definitely better than they, than, than they were at the beginning. Uh, but it's a very hard thing. I think you have to admire uh, any scientist that puts themselves out there in the public sphere to, to, to communicate, uh, particularly given, I mean, we've, we've run uh, quite a few uh, press conferences for some of our uh, COVID publications. Some of the reactions to scientists are extremely negative. Um, and you know, scientists have to be quite brave and quite fixed in to come out and, and be public on, on this kind of thing. Mm. Peter. Yes, well, thank you. I, I would actually challenge David Black on this. I, th I think, you know, his, uh, in his question, he says he's been disappointed by how science has been communicated. I've actually been really encouraged. I think that we have some enormously good science journalists who communicate science brilliantly. If you think back 20 years ago, the only time that science ever got a look in on TV and radio was as a joke. It was never depicted in the richness and excitement that it is now depicted by the by the um, news media and newspapers and so on. It is quite fantastic to me to see how much it has improved. And I think that if you look at the vaccine acceptance rates um, in the UK, I actually think some of that can be put down to the wealth of good communication that's been done on, on behalf of the vaccine um, science community. And I do think, you know, we are listening absolutely to patient panels in all our grants now. Um, they're often involved in writing the applications, um, but and they're listened to throughout the, the making of policy. And that's all to the good. I, I, I actually would challenge David Black about this. I think we've done a pretty damn good job, I'd say. No, that's, that's quite right to have the pushback, Peter. And I think you're completely right that you know as a today program listener you're sort of used to having the sort of 745 what are the wacky scientists up to now slots traditionally and actually now we've got um scientists on there all the time explaining some of these issues and in, in a lot of complexity i wanted to move us on because we're running out of time and i wanted to bring up a question one of our question one of our uh, members of the public has brought it up but also this question of international fora and the way that they're supporting uh, some of this work of science. So John Charlesworth says the WHO has come in for criticism uh, since the start, but on the international scale of coordinated development in the future, what changes does it need to make any improvement in a global response? Beth, I wonder if I could come to you on that sort of, you know, the sort of global architecture for this. I think WHO have been doing a great job in lots of ways through a really challenging time. But this has exposed one of the challenges of the setup of WHO, which is that they've got a huge mandate, a big task to do, but actually quite little power to deliver some of that with. And I think that's going to be one of the questions that we're going to have to look at as we come through the pandemic um, in terms of how the world can respond better 
next time. I think without doubt, there's an important question about how we finance the response. So both in terms of um, the R&D that's, um, that's needed that I talked about earlier, but also things like the early warning systems that we need to have in place. Um, although those things are expensive, it's an insurance against a hugely expensive pandemic. And we've spent so much more on responding to this and dealing with the, uh, the financial fallout than we had preparing for it in the first place. And I think that's one of the big changes that the world needs to think through is how do you create better investment and also um, and create the governance systems that, that can then support that. Yeah, I just want to come in on, on Beth's point on how do we pay for it? And there's a, how do you pay for resilience? What, what, how do you do the insurance policy? It's not, if you're a health minister um, in, in kind of peacetime, um, it's quite hard to justify putting large amounts of money into uh, warehouses full of PPE when you're short of frontline uh, nurses and doctors. Um, if you look at the financial sector, they have different mechanisms now. Um, they, they have uh, central banks running stress tests, they've increased capital ratios. So I think it's, it's worth, um, in the future, a, a debate to, to provoke would be, how do we pay for resilience um, in a way that ministers are not conflicted in their, in their day jobs on, on, uh, on how, to, how to do that? I think that's such an important question. It's one we'll certainly be looking at at the IFG because it's very, as you say, it's sort of governments tend to sort of in the immediate aftermath of the crisis say this all needs to change. Uh, and then sort of two or three years later, the sort of pressures of day to day spending reemerge. Uh, we're running up to the end of time. I wanted to pick up one final question, which was just around the, the international cooperation on vaccines in, in particular. Um, Rupert, we were just talking about, um, you know, sort of getting the funding together. We've got initiatives like COVAX, uh, CEPI, you know, that, that are sort of trying to do this. Do you think that there is starting to be anywhere near like enough international cooperation to get the money behind that? Or are we still a very long way off that? Um, it's something that Peter, I'm sure, knows a great deal about more than I do. But I think the big question on, on funding, once the, I mean, the, the developed world is obviously um, racing ahead. Um, if the, the developing world um, is not properly supported and helped and things happen slowly, then we just create more risk. Um, so I think there's a, there's a huge question about um, how to scale up the funding to do what the UK has done, you know, rapid rollout. Um, you know, the, the emergence of variants um, depends on uh, time and uh, density of infection. So how can that be minimized uh, at a global level? That's a huge funding question. Mm. And just before I come to Peter and Beth for, for final comments, Rupert, one more question, which I think might be a good one for you here from Philip Shapira from the University of Manchester, who asks, has there been an underappreciation of the importance of social and behavioural science in the pandemic scientific advice? And how could this be addressed in future? It's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I think um, funders and uh, you know, all science academies and so on always talk about interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity as a, as a good idea. Um, everyone starts in their own field. There have been quite a lot of efforts to, to uh, incorporate, as we in the society have tried to do, uh, social research and behavioural science in some of our advice, which is a good thing. Um, but it's not easy. Uh, it takes more time, it takes more effort, it creates more uh, sort of uh, debates. Um, but uh, I don't know if there's been enough. Um, but uh, certainly, uh, I think it's really, really important to keep trying and, and 
that's yeah, a good thing in the RD roadmap is, is to highlight that. Peter, uh, final reflections from you on the uh, very rich discussion. Yes, it's hard to know where to start really. Just on that last point, I think there's been some very interesting, rather sort of philosophical dissertation on what it is that uh, that um, promotes the, um, the the holding of uh, of anti-science or extreme views, and maybe gives you a passport into into membership of a social group that otherwise you might be excluded from. I, it's but there's so much to say on that. I mean, I, in conclusion, I, what I'd like to say is just what an amazing um, it, year we've had in terms of showing the power of science and the way in which, you know, long-term uh, support for science and investment in science can, can have such uh, great benefits for society. And I just hope that in the future we can maintain that and enhance science funding rather than finding ways to cut it, which I think would be disastrous at this present moment. Beth, uh, final thoughts from you and perhaps tell us what Welcome is going to be focusing on over the next years. I think this discussion shows the incredibly valuable role and the essential role that science has played in helping us work through what has been incredibly, an incredibly bleak and difficult challenge. And as Peter said, we need to, as a community, be able to explain that, I think, really well, um, make that case for funding. And I hope the government will take those lessons and listen. But I think we can also learn things about how science has worked that we've talked about today. And I hope that we'll keep those um, after the crisis um, and, and continue to build on them in, in terms of the way science works, the way clinical trials work. Infection in the future is going to become one of Wellcome's three health challenges alongside mental health um, and climate change. So keep watching this space. We will still be here and very active in it. Brilliant. And Rupert, did you want to offer any final thoughts and tell us about uh, Royal Society's work? Sure. So I sort of echo uh, the, the others' um, perspectives on, on, on funding. Obviously, I mean, this, this extraordinary response that, that the science community has done has been built on uh, decades of, of funding. And yeah, the, the future of the UK's economy, uh, science funding is so central to that um, uh, on, on basic research and innovation. But I'd, I'd just like to finish on uh, so the Royal Society's, um, the other two existential crises that we're working on, which is climate change and biodiversity. Um, they, they are slow motion and so much, much more difficult uh, cognitively to engage on and yet, uh, and yet uh, very, very serious. So uh, I, I guess a question for us in terms of uh, overall resilience is how we can increase our uh, you know, policy and political support for real action in those areas um, uh, and uh, how you know, they are crises, how can we treat them as a crisis? Brilliant. Thank you, Rupert. And thank you all. That was a really uh, strong call for learning the, the lessons from this crisis, but also maximising the role of science in the UK and indeed internationally going forward. So thank you very much to my uh, brilliant panel and thank you uh, to your questions, those of you who are watching, and thanks again to the forum at Imperial College for sponsoring this event. Uh, if you enjoyed the discussion, we have a final one of our series with Imperial um, on the role of technology in reaching net zero, taking us into some of the questions Rupert was just mentioning there. Uh, that will be on Monday the 29th, uh, that's Monday week, and we'll be hearing from Jurgen Meyer, the former boss of Siemens, 
among others. But thank you very much for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.